Happy Memorial Day weekend. I would like to uh, continue our series on the book of Ephesians right now, and I'd like you to take out your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians. If you remember, uh, a couple weeks ago, I challenged everybody um, to to study the book of Ephesians with us. I said, take on a 90-day challenge for the next 90 days. Would you study the book of Ephesians with us? Every morning, getting up and reading it, or every evening, but reading the book of Ephesians every day. You don't have to read the whole book, but a few verses from it, and see what God does in changing your life. This particular book was written to a group of churches. Ephesus became like the leader one. It's a port town, very important strategic place. So it became Ephesians, and it's got incredible truths in it. As you're going to see today from the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2 we're going to cover. And I want you to read it every day and come to church every weekend. I'm challenging you to do that for 90 days and see what happens to you. Listen to me. Do you understand? That's my job. (laughs) To challenge people spiritually. It's my calling. I've been doing it almost 40 years now. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to challenge you spiritually. And I'm challenging you spiritually 90 days. Watch what God would do. Scripture tells very clearly, God changes us from the inside out. You start putting that in your cranium, let it sink down into your heart, and watch what God does in your life. 90 days. Take on the challenge, will you? Come into church every weekend and read in the Bible every morning. Watch what God will do. Even if you have to get up here earlier or go to bed later, whatever it takes, you're going to take some time every day to read the Word of God. You know, um, I feel the weight of it sometimes, that responsibility uh, for you. I mean, I really do love you. I mean, I can't even explain that. It's like something God put inside me. I just, I feel that way. I really do. I feel a sense of responsibility to help you, nurture you, challenge you. And, and I'd like to pray right now that God would use that in me to help you in your walk with God. Let me pray for you. Lord, we come before you, and we're going to study the book of Ephesians today, as you know. And I am incapable, even though I feel so responsible, I'm really incapable of helping people change. But I know your word changes people. I know your spirit uses the word to change people from the inside out. So, I pray for those who have taken on the challenge and those that need to start taking it on today, that they would start putting that word in the book of Ephesians in their heart. So many truths here, Lord, you've used to change me and change so many millions of others. And now is our chance. So, I pray this morning, Lord, in the next few minutes, you would... You would reach our hearts and our minds with the truth of your word. As we open up ourselves to you, please help us, Lord, have ears that hear and eyes that see the word of God for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. One of the reasons I get so passionate about that kind of stuff is because what you don't know can hurt you. Maybe you've experienced that. Remember Lori's Uncle Don Uncle Don, uh, you know, old enough to be my dad. He was the pastor of a church out in uh, Salem, Oregon for years. Big church out there. And he, you know, how sometimes you don't know people's names or you forget people's names. And he had a little trick he would use and he told me about it. He says, you know, you meet somebody and you say, hey, how you doing? Good to see you, you know, but you don't remember their name. You've never had that app. I have to have it all. 
And you're, so you're, you're sitting there trying to remember their name as you're shaking their hand. And the, he told me about an experience he had once. Uncle Don said, this guy come up. He goes, hey, Pastor, how you doing? He says, good, man. Good to see you. You know, and he's thinking, and the guy said something. goes, oh, Bob. Yeah, hey, Bob. And he had this little trick. He used to kind of let, the, let, without letting the guy know you don't know his name, he'd say to him, hey, you know, how do, how, Bob, how do you spell your last name again? Is it with an I or with an E? Like he knew it. And Bob looks him in the eye and says, Pastor, it's Bob Hill, H-I-L-L. <laughs> Not hell, of course. But anyway, it backfired on him. I don't do those tricks. If I don't know your name, I'll probably just tell you. I don't know your name. <laughs> tell me your name. But it's true. What you don't know can hurt you, right? I mean, on Judgment Day, when people don't know Jesus, is that going to hurt them? Oh, yeah. It hurt a lot for eternity. Even in the New Testament, what it tells us, and even in real life, what we see in people's lives, and I've seen over and over again for years in the church, when people don't know what it is to grow in Christ, they may have even accepted Christ and be a legitimate Christian, but because they don't know some things, they hurt in their relationships, they hurt in their marriage, they hurt with their kids, they hurt at school, they hurt, they hurt in the neighborhood, they hurt, they have no, they get depressed, they get sad, they get bewildered, they go the wrong directions, they make big mistakes in their life. Why? Because what you do don't know can really, really hurt you bad. So one of the reasons I'm excited about a 90-day challenge and about getting you into the word of Ephesians is because you need to know this stuff. And if you don't know it, like that sense of responsibility comes on me, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt other people. This ain't going to be good for you. And I'm here as a warner, someone to warn you and say, don't do that. You, you need to learn a few things. And if you learn it, you're going to be a lot better off. In the book of Ephesians, in the chapter 1, and beginning of chapter 2 is like a gold mine of stuff you can learn. It's just amazing truths. The whole book of Ephesians is like that to me. So much here that you and I can learn. It's the joy where it comes from. And the Apostle Paul was trying to teach him here, and he used two words. I brought this up before, I'm going to bring it up again, 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 again as we go through. The two words are in Christ. Paul is summing up for them, you know what you need to learn? You guys have just become Christians, so what you need to learn is what it means to be in Christ. I remember when I was just a baby Christian, 18, 19 years old, and I thought, because I had grown up in church, I knew so much. Boy, looking back, it was a joke. I didn't know nothing. I had so much to learn. And I remember walking into the book of Ephesians, one of the first little books I started to study in the Bible, and I was learning so much. And it was all about being in Christ, in Christ. Don't forget those two words. As we go through the whole book, notice, if you read it with me, how many times those words are with Christ, in Christ, appear. It's really significant. You'll see it in the passage today. And that's what the Apostle Paul seems to be anxious to bring home. So, join me now as we study. I put down in what's called the big idea of the sermon, what you don't know about being in Christ. And that's what I'm going to try and teach you today in three simple points. What you don't know and you need to know. So, point one reads like this. You can have faith, hope, and love. And that's what Paul's trying to say at the beginning of chapter, I mean, at the end of chapter one. Follow along with me. Let's read it. We'll put it on the screen for you. Chapter one, starting with verse 15. Paul says, after his introduction there, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith, notice that word, he says, I've heard that you have this great faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, he mentions that too, toward all the saints. I don't cease to pray for you all. Remember you my prayers. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having his, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope. Now there's hope. He's mentioned faith and love and now hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he might, that, that he worked in Christ. There's those words, in Christ. That he worked this all out for us in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's making it real clear, isn't he? Everything's in Christ. And if you'll notice something, I want you to just notice something. I could show you this in the book of Colossians. I could show you this in the book of Galatians. I could show you this in the book of Romans. He starts the letter with those three words I noted. Faith, hope, and love. Paul uses those three words like a measuring stick when he addresses these letters to churches, almost like he, in his mind, evaluates the church not on how big they are, not on how well they preach, not on how what kind of music they have. He evaluates it very different than us. Well, do they demonstrate faith? Do they really have a hope for the future? Or are they all depressed, looking at the present? Or, and, and do they have love? this kind of commitment to one another. Remember, about over a year ago, I did a series of messages on faith, hope, and love. Remember, I said faith is like a stepladder. Remember that? I had a stepladder on stage, and I pasted a big sign on one side that says, God's Word, the Word of God. And the other side, I put the word will. Our will, where our will meets, like the top of the ladder, God's Word. That's where you have faith. God's Word is God's Word. But it's not till you put your will into it and you believe it for yourself that it really becomes faith, saving faith. Then I used an anchor to illustrate hope, right? Remember that? Took an anchor with a big long rope on it and I anchored it to the bottom of the cross. I said, you're anchored to the cross. That's your hope for the past, your hope for the present, and your hope for the future is all in Christ. I used that as a symbol. And then what did I use for love? Remember? Concrete. Because there's one synonym in the English language for love that fits better than any other. It's the word commit. You commit. You can't say you love somebody and you won't commit to them. Commitment is what love is all about. If, and I remember this scholar sharing that with me one time, how you can talk about love all you want, and the feelings of love and the sense of love and the pleasures of love, but unless there's a commitment, it's not real love. And so I thought, what would illustrate that better than concrete? Because once you pour concrete, it sets up, it's solid. It can, his whole building's built on concrete. Unbelievable, right? So, faith, hope, and love. Why are these so important? He just read, he just told us that. I'm going to read it for you again. Ready? Verses 18 and 19. Look what he says. Here's why faith, hope, and love are important. He had just mentioned these three, and he says this. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. When you have hope and you have faith and you have love is when you start experiencing your call in life. 
and the riches of his inheritance in his saints. That's when you begin to understand the riches of the gospel, the riches of the truth. You start understanding how this works in your life and this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. His great might, his power in your life, the immeasurable inheritance of what you have based on the, on the past is all found in faith, hope, and love. But the truth is this. Here's the truth. You don't often experience, even a long-time Christian sometimes doesn't experience faith, hope, and love much. Right? We're too afraid to believe. We're too disappointed with the hopes we've had dashed in the past to have hope now. And we're too mad to have love. Too angry. Well, what do you do? How do you get faith? How do you get hope when you see it lacking in your life because you're so disappointed? How do you get love when you're just ticked off? How do you get that back? How do you get renewed? One word. You ready? One word sums it all up for each one of them, whether you want faith or you want hope or you want want love. How do you get it? It's going to take risk. Faith, like the stepladder, one step at a time is risking to the next step. Hope is risking yourself based on that rope tied to the anchor in Christ. Love is the concrete. You're trusting it like you would pour concrete. You're saying, it's going to hold me. That's right. It all takes risk. If you're not willing to risk, you can't love. If you're not willing to risk, you don't have hope. If you're not willing to risk, you're not going to be able to have faith. And nor are you going to be able to be faithful. It's going to take risk. Based on God's word. I was reading this cool story this week in a magazine. It, it's um, the Christian Missionary Alliance periodical. It's called The Alliance Life. I don't know if you get it. You can get it free because you go to this church, you can get one of these free. Every, every month they come out. And um, this is a cool article written by a lady named Cheryl. Uh, and uh, her and her husband, Bob, were missionaries in Chile. And then the Alliance said, you know what? We need you in Mexico. And they sent him to this place in Mexico, Guadalajara. You've heard of Around Guadalajara, 17 million people. And it's called the Circle of Silence. Because nobody knows the gospel. Like less than 1% of the population, 17 million. They, and you know why? Because the drug lords rule the place. They're in charge. And so this lady writes, Cheryl writes, and that's where we're going to be missionaries? Oh boy. And then with their studies, here's what they found out. Listen to this. Our studies of Mexico uncovered that there have been more killings in Mexico in this area between 2007 and 2014 because of drug wars than the number of civilian deaths from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. Holy smokes. Listen to these stats. In that same period of time, 2007-2014, Afghanistan had 21,000 deaths. Iraq had 81,000 deaths. But in Mexico, 164,000. So they're going into a war zone. You think Iraq's dangerous? You think Afghanistan's dangerous? This is twice as bad because of the drug wars. Well, on Tuesday, before we were to start our brand new church, a drug cartel boss confronted my husband, Bob, as we were cleaning up the rented facility we had just purchased. Well, you can't meet here anymore. I don't want you moving in here. You're going to have to take your stuff and get out, said the drug lord. 
My husband replied, well, we have a rental contract. You can't kick us out. <laughs> the guy laughed and said, well, you're in Mexico now, pal. Get out. If I could do a Mexican ask Spanish, I can't. Defeated, I looked over to the landlord. And the landlord just put up his hands like, out of my hands. I can't handle it. So the guy they were renting from said, hey, whatever he says. So as Bob refused to leave, threats started coming. And the drug lord said, oh, I have a video of you stealing from my, from my truck. I'm going to give that to the police and get you put in jail. Great, he said. I'll have a great ministry in jail, said Bob to him. When you try and have services, I'm going to lock the doors on you. Great, we'll have a service in the parking lot. It's a nice big parking lot. I like outdoor services. Then the last threat came. I see you have a lot of children here. They tend to disappear in Mexico. Whoa, so we left and we went to prayer. Lord, how can this be? What happened? Did, you, did, did, did we get it wrong? Are we in the wrong place? Didn't the Holy Spirit lead us to this place? So later, Bob met with the man to get our money back from the landlord and to talk with this cartel boss. And Bob met with the boss and the landlord. After getting his money back, the, 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 the cartel boss went into this furious outburst. Where he, but he finally ended by saying, but you know what? I'll let you stay here a couple more weeks if you want to get your services started before you find a place. And Bob, to his own surprise, her husband Bob said this, we don't need you. We don't want your help. God has a place much better for us, a place that is close by, and a place that's cheaper than this. <laughs> you will need a pastor someday, and when you do, will be your church, and I will be your pastor. Here's a book on prayer. Why don't you read this? <laughs> well, Bob was as dumbfounded as the cartel boss. Bob had just turned down the only hope of having a place to, to hold our services by these, like, almost prophetic words. But it was soon very clear that God had a plan that we didn't know about. No less than 30 minutes after Bob had uttered those words, those kind of prophetic words, I guess, the Lord brought us a builder who had an unfinished building close by, just down the street, and he would let us use it until we found a permanent place. In three days, we had cleaned the place up. We were ready to go for start services. And the first Sunday, the place was packed, and it's been growing ever since. Wow. And I ask you, how did they understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the states and, and the immeasurable greatness of his power? They only understood it when they were willing to take a risk. What in your life could possibly happen if you had enough guts, enough faith, enough hope, enough solid commitment to say, I'm trusting God on this. I'm moving forward in my marriage. I'm moving forward with my kids. I'm going to trust God with them. I'm going to do this, take this job because God's calling me. I know, I'm going to take on this ministry. I'm going to get involved. What could it be? It takes risk. Nobody has faith or hope or love without risk. And this story, it just hit me. I'm like, oh, that'd be a great sermon illustration. Here we go, you know. Look what these people did. You know, he talks about, it's, it's not religious gobbledygook when he talks about immeasurable riches or his extravagant, immeasurable power. No, it's real stuff. But it's only for the risk takers. Those who have the faith, the hope, the love. That's why you need faith, hope, and love so badly. 
because it's all just waiting for you. It's, it's ready for your own picking. And what they've seen happen in Mexico has been absolutely amazing in the circle of silence. They've had a great voice. We could do at this church. I think that's what God's called us for. Here's, hey, if there's a circle of silence in the United States, it's New Jersey, right? Like, come on. We've got to reach these people, and we can. If we're willing to take that kind of risk. Well, second point, chapter 2. Paul feels like, you know, you guys, you've got to go back. You've got to remember who you are. Look what he says in chapter 2, point 2. Uh, you're dead now and you're alive. And in, point, in verse, chapter 2, he says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Boy, that's a pretty depressing thought. He's saying, we're all captivated. Notice key words. The key words are what? Dead, verse 1. Also, verse 1, trespasses. Also, verse 1, sins. He starts out with that. Just almost like shocking them, saying, well, remember, we're, we're all dead. But because of Christ, we have become alive. He's going to say that starting in verse, verse 4. But until then, you know... Often, we don't really get the solution to our problems because we really don't know what's causing them. And Paul's trying to convince these people, you know, the reason you're all tied up, the reason you guys are so misdirected and you're hurting each other and hurting people and not finding fulfillment in life and you lack purpose, is the reason is you don't know the problem. You're identifying the wrong problem. You get the wrong fixes. You think the world's going to fix it for you. What they tell you in this world's going to get more stuff, have more things, get, more, get another wife, another husband. No, no, that's not the answer. The answer is in finding out the real problem. He says, you know, it's our deadness. It's our trespasses. It's our sin. I was reading a book this week. I wanted to read to you. This is a new book I got. It's called Fallen. It's called A Theology of Sin. In other words, let's identify this problem that Paul identifies. He talks about, in the Greek, this guy, Mu, he's a professor, scholar, and this whole, a biblical scholar, and so he's writing about it. He's a teacher up at Wheaton. And harmartia is the major word, I knew that, as the major word of sin in, in the New Testament. But he says there's a whole bunch of other words. He mentions the word for transgression and a whole bunch of other words used, like this. Unrighteousness, disobedience, uncleanness, lawless, ungodly, godlessness, unbelief, unfaithfulness, ignorance, error, futility, lie, liar, stumble, a futile life, uh, 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 doing what is evil, deeds of darkness, and not obeying the truth. He says all these things are words Paul uses to define for us what sin is. And how it traps us. Now listen to how this scholar sums it up. You ready? I could, we could go through all this study. Let's just read what he has in a little paragraph. Paul's point in, a, in using all these different words in this kind of language is just to make it clear what the human predicament really is. In a key summary statement, Paul claims that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Listen to me. Paul does not say that all people commit sins as if doing things contrary to God's will was just an occasional problem. 
nor does he even say that all people are sinners, suggesting that sin is a pervasive problem. Rather, he says that all people are under the power of sin. Paul uses this kind of language to speak of a situation of domination, even slavery. Paul, in, 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 in Scripture, generally reveals that human beings are addicted to sin. So when he says we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, that's what he's trying to say. You're addicted. Ask any alcoholic, ex-alcoholic, or any drug addict, and they'll tell you, man, I just had to. I was, I was controlling me. Paul's point exactly about everyone in the world and sin. It's got you more than you got it. <laughs> it's controlling you. So, so look what he goes on to say. They are imprisoned under it, unable to free themselves by anything they can do. Nothing. Try as you will, you can't get free from sin. You're addicted. Knowing this, God has sent us not a teacher, not a politician, but a liberator, Jesus Christ. One who has the power to set us free from our sins. When we really see the people all around us at work and in the neighborhood and at the store as helpless captives of sin, we will be better motivated to help them find the liberator, Jesus Christ, who alone can, can rescue them from their captivity. Only Jesus Christ, proclaimed in the gospel, can break through the walls of sin that imprison human beings. Ah, it does help, doesn't it? As he's going to go on to say, now you can't set yourself free. Only Christ can. This is significant for you and me to understand. He says, you know, you just follow your passions and you followed the ways of sin in the past. When Christ comes into you, he creates all new desires, all new passions. Like a passion like I received to read the Bible. I never wanted to read it before or to grow in Christ, or to love other people. Like, where did that come from? Not from me. No, God puts it there. He changes us from the inside out. Is that happening to you? It should be. That's what God's doing for us when we accept Christ as our Savior. Um, he comes to verse 4, which I can't wait to get to, because all we've been reading here in the beginning of chapter 2 is the bad news. Well, here's the good news. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, notice those words, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, addicted in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now notice those words, together with Christ, okay? By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, notice, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that over and over again, he keeps referring to what we have in Christ. It reminds me of, remember in John, uh, Jesus' teaching in John fifteen five, And he says, he says that, uh, you know, uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You know, when a branch is separated from the vine, it doesn't grow. But then he says this at the end. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I don't know how that hits you. But when, when I hear that, apart from me, you can do nothing, I think, wait, what do you mean? I can do a lot of things apart from God. I have in my life. How about you? I've done a lot of things. Yeah, but nothing that's alive. Nothing in life. Everything I do is dead 
I'm challenging you. As a spiritual leader, I'm challenging you. Are you trying dead things to make your life alive? Dead, dead stuff? Stuff the world sells you? It's dead. You're not going to find life there. How hard do you work? How hard do you try? How much do you dream about? When really your life is now found in Christ. That's his whole point. Ephesians, you've got to understand this. Your life is now in Christ. And notice that, with Christ, in Christ. He's saying, when Christ went to the cross, you went to the cross. When he raised from the dead, you, he's saying here, there's two resurrections. Did you read it in here? Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God. That's what we celebrated Easter, right? And guess what? You're with him. You've been raised to newness of life. It calls it in the book of Romans chapter 6. You're different now. And that's the whole point. You can't live like you once did because you're not the person you once were. You used to be dead. Now you're alive. Live for Christ. Live in life. That's right. Praise the Lord. That's the only hope we got. Well, one more book. I wanted to read this to you. Sorry for reading so much today, but it's such good stuff. I, they say it better than me. Here's Rankin Wilborn. He's a, a scholar for sure. And l- listen to what he brings up. What, what, here's how he got saved. He used to go to Princeton, stuff like that. He's in the L.A. now. He's a pastor. Sin is an unpopular, very unpopular word today. It's associated with rule-breaking and forbidden pleasures. In Los Angeles, where I live, one of the reasons Christianity is unattractive to so many is because it's seen as life-denying, not life-accepted. It's seen as pessimistic and judgmental and hypocritical. I suppose that was my impression of Christianity as well. Why I, I wanted nothing to do with the Lord as a young adult. Then I encountered, listen to what he encountered, This wouldn't have happened to me. (laughs) Then I encountered another masterpiece from medieval art. Uh, Don't look at medieval art. The Divine Comedy by the Italian poet Dante. The poem is a classic of, of world literature. Deep into the story, a couplet caught my eye from this poem. Here's how it reads. Hey, raise your hand if you've ever read Dante. Oh, good, we've got some intellectuals here, some art students. Listen, here's the line that caught his attention. He said this, he'll say it, this line changed my life. Ready? Here's what he says. Love is the seed in you of every virtue. Love is like your motivation, the seed in you of everything you do good, of every virtue. Ready? And, this is the part that caught him, of all acts deserving deserving punishment. I'll read again. Love is the seed in you of every virtue and of all acts deserving punishment. It may not seem like much printed on this page, but those lines changed my life, this guy says. Everything we do, Dante is saying, the good things we do are the bad things. Every virtue and every vice we do for love. We're lovers. We're creatures of desire. It's simply a question of where that desire is directed. Dante was the one who showed me that sin was not the breaking of some rules so much as the misdirected love in my life. Oh, that explains what Paul's trying to say here so beautifully. 
That's exactly what he's trying to say. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Christ has set you free now that you're actually living. You know, it's your, your, your passions, your desires. They've changed because God's changing you from the inside out. Because we're lovers. That's who we are. God made us to be lovers. And you're either going to love sin or you're going to love God. You're either going to love your sinful passions and follow them or love other people. It's going to be one of the two because that's the way human beings are. And, and Paul lays out so beautifully here. That leads me to the last point and where he really puts it together. Last point. You've been given Grace. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, there, there's so much. These are two of my favorite verses in the Bible. So much I can teach you about this, but I just want you to get two things. He says this. You ready? You thinkers, you theologians, you people that need to know things. Here's what you need to know. You need to know I'm saved by grace. Grace by, the preposition, the word by there means it's... Um, the basis. He goes on to say, nothing that you did by grace. You can't work it up by grace. You were, you were prisoned. You were a slave to sin. You didn't do nothing to get out. Can't work your way out. Not by your works, at least any man should boast. By grace. God gave it to you. He says, it's a gift. Through what? How did you get it? Through faith. All you had to do is believe that Jesus Christ was your Savior. So you're saved by grace, not your works. Saved through faith. Get it? It's through trusting in God's grace that you get the free gift of salvation. For by grace you're saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. I was reading a little history the other day about the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, in San Francisco, that big, long bridge. I, did, I didn't know this. In the 1930s, when they were building it, there was like three or four guys that, that fell off the bridge while they're working on it and died. And as a result, in the middle of the construction, it kind of like stopped. The workers didn't want to work. Lots of guys quit. The ones that did go up there weren't very productive. And the whole thing kind of came to a halt. So the contractor thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend more money and build a huge net underneath where the men work so that if they fall, they get caught by the net and they can keep working. We don't lose so many workers. And the ones that are working aren't so scared to move all the time. So they built this huge net. I forget how many hundreds of thousands it cost them, but they built this monstrous net and the men started working again and started getting more productive. And sure enough, a couple guys fell and they're caught by the net. And they got back up there and started working again. Productivity took off, and the bridge got done in record time after that. Do you get the visual aid? Visual aid is that security that we have in Christ because Jesus died on the cross, and it's by grace through faith. It makes you work. It changes you. Look at this last verse because that's what explains it. Ready? Verse 10. This is what he says. Now, that we are saved by grace through faith, a gift from God, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's saying, you're going to be more productive wanting to work because you know you have your security. And by the way, he said, this is why you were created. 
You were created to be workers for God. Look at Genesis. God gave them the garden, said, okay, kids, take over. You're in charge. You're going to work for me now. This is, this is why we exist. And this is what we're working for. That only takes place when we realize the security we have in Christ. You can't earn your way to God. You can't work your way into his, his goodness. Only Jesus Christ can give you that as a gift. And you accept it by faith. But then that gives you the ability to say, okay, well, now what can I do? Where should I go? Who should I serve? In my family, at school, in the community, at church. Where can I serve? Where can I be a minister? Because that's who I am. You know, there's a lot of Christians even don't get that. I have three son-in-laws. One of my, all my son-in-laws get this, but one of them really gets it. It's my middle son-in-law. His name is Jeff. Jeff works for Young Life. You know, he's in ministry just like I am out in, in Pennsylvania. Having a, him and Julie are having this amazing ministry. They have four kids, but they have tons of high school kids. He's led to Christ, all kinds of ministry opportunities. And of all my three son-in-laws, only one of them has a tattoo, and it's Jeff. Yeah, he's got a tattoo. Best tattoo I've ever seen in my life. When he was in college, verse 10 got to him. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And it dawned on Jeff, that's why I'm here. I'm here to serve. So he tattooed that word right here, serve. Like I said, best tattoo I've ever seen. It's real. It's for his life. He's saying, this is my life. Here, I'm here to serve. And it's really true. Even when his kids make a big mess, he serves and cleans it up. I mean, it's wonderful. He's an amazing guy with working with people, with working with, with kids in high school and helping people and helping parents because he realized, I'm here to serve. He looks at life that way and he put it on his wrist so he would never, ever forget. You know, this is sometimes our problem. We forget. I'm his workmanship created by Christ Jesus to serve it's just a matter of who I'm serving. Me? I'm never going to be happy or fulfilled. Them? Someone else? Serving God? For helping God them see the Lord? That's why I'm here. You know, you need to change your frame of reference. And that's what the scriptures are going to do. Help you change your frame of reference. Remember I said at the beginning, what you don't know can really hurt you. Yeah, because sometimes we got our frame of reference, who we are, why we're here, what we're trying to do, how we be happy, all wrong. And we need to change our frame of reference. No better way to do that than to use the Bible. Pastor Marty can't help you, but God can help you. Pastor Marty can't save you, but God can. Pastor Marty can't change your passions, your desires, your love for the things of the world, but God can, and that's what he does. That's what this whole pastor's been telling us. Yeah. You need to learn it. So you don't hurt yourself. So you don't hurt other people. Maybe even people you love and care about. You don't hurt the church. You don't hurt the community. You don't hurt. You're now a server. God's changed you. That, that, that's why I challenged you to a 90-day study. Because I know you need to be changed. And I know God's word is the basis upon which you can be changed. What I'd like to do is just pray with you about that. Bow with me in prayer. Just bow your head. Lord, we come to you and we admit we need some changing, Lord. Without, without 
you uh, we're, we're, we're still like dead sinners and we just life is dead and sometimes we even act like that which is why we feel so dead but you've given us life you, you call it immeasurable riches Lord and we want ooh I want some of that you tell us we can have mighty power and we go ooh I want some of that but without the risk it's going to take to have faith and the risk it's going to take to have hope and the risk it's going to take to, to have concrete love we're never going to experience that Lord is, is God been speaking to you let me just talk to you a second in our prayer and he's been telling you something this morning you need to trust him for come on take the risk Say, okay, Lord, here we go. Because you're the Lord. I'm going to trust you. And you've called me. I'm going to serve. I'm going to, I'm going to give myself to this. I'm going to, I'm going to put it on the line. Even my own soul for eternity. I'm going to trust you as my Savior, my Lord. Maybe you get it for the very first time. I don't have to earn my way to God. He paid the whole penalty. He gave me all that I need in Christ. And maybe you finally get it. I'm a servant. I'm here to serve all the other stuff goes up and down. The stock market, the job, the kids, the marriage, everything, everything else fluctuates in this world. But if I will keep serving the Lord, I have a guaranteed investment that will prosper and grow. I put my faith in Christ alone. Can you say that in your heart? Lord, I'm going I'm to study the book of Ephesians and I pray you'll keep teaching me deep truths to change my very frame of reference. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. God bless. I'll see you next week.